You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. In our first lecture, we went over the importance of logic and had an overview of the whole of logic. Logic was divided into three parts according to the three operations of the human intellect. Simple apprehension, composing and dividing to understand the true and the false, and discursive reasoning. Now, in this lecture, we're going to go into the details of the logic of the first operation. Our task today is to look at the Isagoge of Porphyry, which introduces us to the terms that Aristotle uses in his categories. Now, the first operation grasps what a thing is and expresses that understanding in a word. For example, I communicate my grasp of what a dog is by using the word dog. Now there's something to notice about that word. It is attributed to many different individuals. Fido, Spot, and Rover are dogs. When one thing can be predicated of many, it is called universal. Therefore, the logic of the first operation, I should say, focuses on coming to understand the things that are signified by universal words. Now first, there's a difficulty with this. It doesn't seem that we need logic to help us understand what we grasp by these simple terms. We simply know what a dog is. So if there's no way in which we can improve our grasp of the simple term, then it seems we don't need a logic for the first operation. But Plato's dialogue, entitled The Mino, explains why we need a part of logic to guide us in the first operation of the human intellect. Now, the dialogue begins by the character Mino finding Socrates, and immediately upon finding Socrates, he confronts him with a difficult question. Can you tell us, Socrates, whether virtue is acquired by teaching. Now, this is how Socrates responds. O Mino, I confess with shame that I know literally nothing about virtue. And when I do not know the what of anything, how can I know its properties? Mino wants to jump immediately to the question of whether virtue has certain attributes. But Socrates replies that we must ask a previous question. What is virtue? Now, Socrates is clearly not ignorant of what the Greek word for virtue means. Rather, what he's saying is that he only has a vague idea of what the thing signified by that word actually is. And before he can assign properties to that thing, he needs to have a more precise account of what that thing actually is. Thus, even in the first operation of the intellect, there's a progress in knowledge, a progress from a vague understanding 
to a distinct one. That distinct idea is necessary for us if we're going to reason about the properties of the thing. So we need a logic to direct us in our progress from a simple but vague understanding of what something is to a distinct understanding of what that thing is. Now, what's that kind of process called? That process is called definition. Definition is the way our mind moves from a vague to a distinct understanding of what something is. So what Socrates is doing is he's asking Mino for a definition of virtue. Now, the rest of the text of Plato's Mino progresses with Mino offering various definitions of virtue and Socrates finding a problem with each of those definitions. Right away, that's going to tell us that this logic of the first operation, which is going to guide us towards acquiring good definitions, is not going to be easy. So what I'd like to do now is to take up each of the definitions Mino gives, see what Socrates finds wrong with it, and in the end, sum up from what we gather from Plato what a good definition needs to have. Now, Mino first defines virtue as follows. The virtue of a man is to know first how to administer the state and in the administration of it to benefit his friends and harm his enemies. The woman's virtue is to order and keep what is indoors and to obey her husband. Every age, every position of life, young or old, slave or free, has a different virtue. Now, Socrates doesn't like this definition, and this is why. He says, how fortunate I am, Mino. I ask you for one virtue, and you give me a swarm of them. But the virtues, no matter how many and how different they may be, have a common nature which makes them all virtues. Now, I think we can take this lesson from Mino's first attempt to define virtue. Mino, when asked for a definition of virtue, begins to describe all the different kinds of virtue. But Socrates wants to know what all the different kinds of virtue have in common. When we are looking for a definition of something then, we are looking for one common nature that belongs to all of the things defined. So, Mino decides he needs to give a second definition of virtue, and he gives the following. If you want to have one definition of them all, I know not what to say except that virtue is the power of governing mankind. Now, Mino has made some progress. He gives a definition that doesn't break virtue up into parts, but rather gives a kind of common nature. But Socrates criticizes it for a different reason. Does this definition for virtue include all virtue? Is the virtue the same in the child and the slave, Mino? Can the child govern his father or the slave his master? So, from Socrates' second criticism, we learn a second lesson about definition. A definition should not only avoid splitting a thing into parts, but it must apply to all of the parts, to every one of the things defined. For example, 
the definition of virtue cannot simply be a list of the virtues of a man, of a woman, of a child. Neither can it leave any of those virtues out. It has to apply to the virtue of a man and the virtue of a woman and the virtue of a child. Minos does not because it says that virtue is the power of governing. And clearly the power of governing is not the virtue of a child or of the slave. So Minos definition does not apply to all of the things defined. Finally, Mino gives the last definition. He says, virtue is the desire for good things and the power of attaining them. Now, this definition avoids the pitfalls which wrecked the previous definitions. It gives one nature and it applies to all of the things defined. But Socrates still objects. He says, do not all men, my dear sir, desire good things. Then, according to your definition, virtue would seem to be simply the power of attaining good. But is any mode of acquisition, even if just unjust and dishonest, equally to be deemed virtue? The definition of virtue fails because it applies to men who are not virtuous. For example, the tyrant, like all men, desires good things in his life and Unlike some, he has the power of attaining them. But he has the power of attaining them only unjustly. Yet given Mino's definition, we would have to say that the tyrant is virtuous. But clearly, the definition of virtue should not apply to a tyrant. The definition should apply only to virtuous men. So we can say this. The definition of a thing must not break up the thing into parts, rather it must give one common nature to the thing. Secondly, it must apply to everything that's being defined. And thirdly, the definition of a thing must not apply to anything outside of what's being defined. The definition includes everything in the thing being defined and excludes everything outside of it. Now, those are the three main rules for a good definition. Now, before we go on, I'd like to talk a little bit about definition by comparing it to the art of building. Now, a builder may have the art of building. He may know how to make a good house. He may have all the proper materials, but he might still be unable to make the house. And he might be unable to make it because he does not have the tools. If he does not have a saw and hammer, the blueprints and the lumber are useless. Right now, we're in the same position with regard to definition. We know what a good definition should look like, but we don't yet have the tools that will enable us to make a good definition. These tools fall into two classes, those given to us in Porphyry's Isagoge and those given in Aristotle's categories. In the rest of today's lesson, we're going to focus on Porphyry's Isagoge and then in the subsequent two lessons on Aristotle's categories. Now, 
Porphyry begins his isagoge in a related but kind of unusual way. Maybe unusual is the wrong word. Unexpected would probably be a better word. He begins by laying out what later philosophers have called the problem of the universal. The reason he does that is because, as we said before, in the first operation of the intellect, we're dealing with universal words. One word that is predicated of many different individuals. And the question immediately comes up when we're doing the logic of the first operation, what exactly is the universal? Now, the attempt to answer that question and the conflicting answers given together make up what's called the problem of the universal. Now, I'd like to spend a little time discussing the problem of the universal before we get into the substance of Porphyry's Isagoge. Let's recall what we said about the universal. We said the word dog was a universal term because I can say Fido is a dog, Spot is a dog, Rover is a dog. One word dog applies to many different individuals. That's what it is to be universal. For Plato, the question immediately arises, what is this universal? What does that universal term really point to? And he gives an answer to that question, which has been very controversial. He answers the question with his theory of the forms. He says that the universal word doesn't point to anything in the physical world. Rather, the universal word points to what he calls a form, a changeless and perfect being which does not exist in the physical world but exists in some other realm. Physical things are imitations of those forms. For example, there is a form of dogness that exists in this other realm. It is perfect and changeless. Fido, Spot, and Rover are imitations of this form of dogness. Now, this is something you've probably talked about in your course on ancient philosophy. Now, what Plato says about the word dog, then, is that primarily it points to the form, but it points to Fido, Spot, and Rover insofar as Fido, Spot, and Rover imitate the form of dogness. So we say Fido's a dog, not because he's really a dog, but because he imitates the form of dogness, which exists in another realm. Of course, such a solution to the problem of universals is bound to be controversial. The controversy was formulated by Porphyry at the beginning of his Isagoge with three questions. First of all, Porphyry asks the question, are universals real or imaginary? Now, we've already seen Plato saying the universals are real. They exist in some form outside of the physical world. But some of the medieval philosophers called nominalists will say the universals are not real. They are imaginary. So there's a conflict on that question. The second question Porphyry asks, if the universals are real, are they corporeal? or are they incorporeal? That is, are they physical objects or are they not physical objects? 
Now, Plato clearly answers that the forms are not physical objects. But in the Middle Ages, some of the philosophers who were trying to solve the problem of universals said, in fact, that they were physical objects. Thirdly, Porphyry asks, if the universals are incorporeal, do they exist in bodies or do they exist separately? Now, Plato clearly said they exist separately. Aristotle and St. Thomas will answer the opposite way. They will say that the universals, in a way, exist in physical things. Now, Porphyry ends his discussion of the problem of universals by saying that the solution to this problem goes beyond the scope of logic. And St. Thomas will say that Porphyry is right. The solution to the problem of the universal is really given in the science of metaphysics. So uh, we bring up the problem of the universal because it comes from logic. But in fact, the solution to it is not found in logic. It is found in metaphysics. However, the problem relates clearly to what Porphyry is doing in his Isagoge because what he's talking about in the Isagoge are the ways of being universal. The ways in which a term, a word I should say, can be universal. And we give a name for those ways in which a word can be universal. We call them the predicables. So, the rest of Porphyry's Isagoge is a discussion of the predicables. So why don't we turn to that now? Porphyry, in his Isagoge, says there are five predicables. And he gives names for them. Genus, species, difference, property, and accident. We're going to focus on the first three, genus, species, and difference. Those are the predicables most involved in making definitions. We're only going to talk briefly about the property and the accident. First, we're going to talk about genus. Porphyry doesn't jump right in to his discussion of genus. He works up to it. And he does this by using etymology. He talks about where we get this word genus. He says, the first meaning of genus is a family or a clan. Now, we could look at the Kennedys, for example. They're a famous American clan, and many of them are called Kennedys because that's the name of their patriarch, Kennedy, Joseph Kennedy. But certain universal terms can be related to each other in a way that's similar to the way in which the clan is related to its patriarch. For example, the terms dog, cat, and horse are all universal in their own right, but they all have one term predicated of them, animal. A dog is an animal, a cat is an animal, a horse is an animal. And since animal is like a kind of name for a clan or a family, the Greeks did, I should say, extend the word genus from family to talk about words like animal, predicates that have many universals underneath them. And so Porphyry then can give a strictly logical definition of what genus is. He writes, 
A genus is that which is predicated in answer to what is it of many differing in species. For example, animal of man and beast. Now, one thing we should notice, he's brought in the word species in his definition of genus, and the reason is because genus and species are relative terms. They're going to have to be defined in relation to each other. So, what we could say is this. A genus is something that has many species arranged underneath it, and it answers the question, what is it about those species? Now let's see what he says about species. Porphyry again gives the etymology of the term. Now, the English word species comes from a Latin word which has a parallel to the Greek word because they both mean visible form. Right? The species of something is what you look at, what you see when you look at it. Since we often divide things into kinds, according to how they appear to us externally, then Porphyry says we can extend the meaning of the term species from talking about the outward visible appearance of the thing to talking about the kind of thing something is. So he gives the following strictly logical definition. Species is what is arranged under genus and of which genus is predicated in answer to the question, what is it? Now, something to notice about this definition. The explanations of both genus and species refer to the question, what is it? Now that question, what is it, asks us for something. It asks for a definition. This is the case because genus and species are closely related to each other by a definition. The genus answers the question, what is it, about the species. Therefore, the genus must fall into the definition of the species. So genus is going to be one of the main tools that we use in constructing good definitions. Now, the genus cannot be the whole definition of the species because the genus includes things which the species excludes. And we know this because a genus has many species underneath it. So for example, animal is the genus of dog, but animal includes more than dog. It includes cat, horse, and finally man as well. However, definitions always exclude everything outside the species. Therefore, the definition must have more to it than simply the genus. And that more we call the specific difference. Now, once again, we can talk about the etymology of the word. Difference comes from two Latin words, dis and fere, which means to carry apart. So a difference carries two things apart. So the difference is going to be something under the genus that carries the species apart from each other. Porphyry gives the following strictly logical definition of specific difference. He writes, difference is predicated in answer to of what kind of those differing in species, or difference is what naturally separates those under a genus. To take another example, living thing is a genus, and it has two species under it, plant and animal. The specific differences are 
The animal has sensation. The plant does not have sensation. So if someone asked us, well, what kind of living thing is an animal? I'd say, an animal is a living thing that has sensation. And if someone asks me, what kind of living thing is a plant? I say, it's a kind of living thing that lacks sensation. Thus, the specific difference answers the question of what kind of the species in relation to its genus. So we've got three tools that when put together will give us a way to construct good definitions. A good definition we saw before must give a common nature, one thing that applies to all of the things defined. And it must exclude everything that's not being defined. Now, the species is a common nature. The genus of that species includes everything that possesses the common nature. The difference excludes everything that does not possess the common nature. Thus, the definition of a species is made by putting together a genus and a specific difference. We could take the famous example of man. Man is a species. Someone asks, what is man? And Aristotle will answer, man is the rational animal. Now, animal is the genus for man because it's predicated in answer to the question, what is it, of man, but also of other species, dog, cat, horse. Rational is the specific difference of man because it is what carries man away from the other animals, what excludes everything that is not being defined. I put the genus man, the animal, the specific difference rational together, and I get rational animal, the definition of man. There's one more thing to say about genus and species. Porphyry writes, the summum genus is that genus above which there is no higher genus. The infamous species is that species below which there is no lower species. Between the summum genus and the infamous species are others which may be taken as genera or species, depending on how you look at it. Now, we compared the relations of genus and species to family relations, and what Porphyry's doing here is he's kind of picturing for us a family tree of genera and species. The genus is a common nature that belongs to all the species below it, but that genus itself may be a species of a higher genus, which itself might be the species of a higher genus. But eventually, Porphyry says, we get to a genus which is not a species, which has no genus higher than it. And if we go down, we come to a species which is not a genus, which has no species under it. This is illustrated in chart one. At the top of what we're going to call the tree of porphyry is substance, which is a genus, but not a species. It's called the summum genus. It's divided into two species, body and spirit, by the specific differences taking up space and not taking up space. The species body is a genus to a species underneath it, living and non-living thing. 
In this case, the differences are contained in the very names of the species. Living thing is the genus of plant and animal, and the differences which divide it are having sensation and not having sensation. And finally, underneath animal are the species man and beast. Man is an infamous species, since underneath him there are no species. He is a species without being a genus. There are only individuals, Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. And in a way, we could use the whole tree to give a complete definition of man. Man is a substance who takes up space, is living, has sensation, and is rational. That completes our discussion of genus, species, and difference. I'd just like to take up the topics of property and accident extremely briefly. Neither of them are used in a definition. What a property is, is a characteristic which belongs to all of one species and only that species. For example, man is able to laugh. That ability to laugh belongs to all men, only to men. But it does not answer the question, what is it about man? That's a property. Finally, an accident is any other characteristic, which is neither a property nor a genus, species, or a specific difference. For example, Socrates is white. White is an accident. Happens to belong to Socrates, does not necessarily belong. Genus, species, difference, property, and accident are the five predicables. Now, the first three are the tools we need for a good definition but they're not enough by themselves. The process of defining is only complete when we can spell out all the way to the highest genus. So another tool that we're going to need in order to make good definitions is a list of the highest genera. And then once we get to that highest genus, we're going to need to find ways to find specific differences. That's what Aristotle's categories does. In the first part of Aristotle's categories, he gives us a list of the highest genera. In the second part, he gives us a way to find specific differences. In our next lecture, we'll talk about the first part. And in the lecture following that, we'll talk about the second part. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.